Hello, this is Pixelated Playgrounds, a gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Galecki. And today, we're talking about Paradise Killer, developed by British studio Kaizen Gameworks. It was released in September of 2020 for Windows and the Switch, and we will be going deep into spoilers, so heads up if you're sensitive to that. So why are we playing this game? It's because I finally listened to Brian when he said I should play this game. <laughs> That's right. I played this game early in 2021, uh, just early enough, in fact, that I didn't get a chance to put it on my 2020 game of the year list, which at this point, I think I would have. Uh, I loved this game. <laughs> and then for me, being the new dad and doing the late night feedings, I needed something to occupy myself on the Switch. Uh, and this game was a perfect match for that. It was something you could pick up and put down and you know, make a 20 to 30 minutes of progress on at a time. Worked great for that. So once again, you played this on the Switch, and I played it on the PC. Um, in the Switch, were you able to just sort of use the, the resume and suspend function um, and just, you know, basically pick up, where you le- pick up where you left off? Yes, with one important exception, uh, which I'll get to <laughs> later on. Uh, basically, I lost several hours because this game does not have an autosave function, and I stumbled across a menu bug that I got stuck in. Ooh, you hate to see it. Um, I do feel, though, given that this is an indie game, and, and we'll go into that in a moment, uh, that it's pretty polished. This game definitely has some interesting uh, sort of indie quirks and some sort of old-school retro quirks, too. It definitely has an aesthetic that it's going for, and it's it's pretty unique in how it pursues it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I think it'll be t- interesting to look at what developed our, or what parts of that aesthetic came from the limited resources of the two-man studio and what parts were more choices they went for. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And speaking of two-man studio, maybe we can introduce these guys. Kaizen Gameworks, uh, basically formed and founded by technical director Phil Crabtree and creative director Ollie Clark-Smith, uh, who were basically friends in school and then both went into the game industry via very different paths and then worked together on a couple mobile and indie or mobile and then AAA games and uh, eventually decided, hey, we, we got to go do this for ourselves now. <laughs> <laughs> now it was interesting. I was looking at some of the interviews of these guys talking about their experiences together and they said that part of the influences of this game came from when they were teenagers and just passing a controller back and forth and i'm like oh what a touching story yeah it sounds like uh some similar stories of uh, a, a certain josh and brian i know um, but <laughs> well you yeah. let me know when you want to go into the games business together <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. hey um well you've got a good start with the technical and well, you, know, you know what let's talk um, <laughs> But seriously, um, this game did have a, a really interesting sort of story all its own in terms of development. As I understand, it started off as sort of, uh, I, I saw in an interview, Crazy Taxi meets Gone Home, which um, you know, it's definitely not where it ended up as sort of an open world investigative game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's definitely investigating going on right now, but... Um... I heard the one of the original main characters was actually Lydia Daybreak instead of Lady Love Dice. And Lydia Daybreak is kind of the fairy woman who shuttles people from one alternative reality to another. Yeah, that's that's true. I, I find it really interesting that they, you know, 
changed the mechanics so much over time, but it was always a story about a paradise world with a crazy, you know, deep lore backstory. Um, the fantasy world was sort of a thing that they, they couldn't get away from and needed to have the story function. You know, it let them get a level of control over everything that they just couldn't get uh, without, without having that there. We should probably set the stage a little bit first. Um, yeah. In Paradise Killer, you are on a Paradise Island, the 24th in a long sequence of Paradise Islands. You are members of the Syndicate, a cult that... Uh, sorry, an immortal cult that worships dead gods and is trying to revive them by kidnapping people from Earth and making them worship and eventually sacrificing them to these dead gods. Right. So that all of what you Josh just said is basically like the backdrop for the story. You're actually inhabiting a detective. Lady Love dies, right? So uh, she is investigating the murder of the council who is a high up group of uh, members of the syndicate that Josh mentioned and uh, it is your job to figure out uh, who murdered paradise in that 24, 24th iteration and can I say damn what an interesting setting like we've played detective games before where it's like oh there's a gunshot wound in the back of an alleyway and this is like you're part of a group of immortals who are murdering and scheming against each other because they're bored after having so many thousands of years of nothing else to do. It, it's really quite an awesome premise, and like it, it's immediately disorienting, but in the best way. Like I need to know way more about this immediately disorienting. Um, and the first taste you get of that is when you wake up and the sign in front of you says you've been in exile for three million some odd days um, <laughs> or 8,000 years. And so, you know, it's just immediately saying these people are immortal. There's something very crazy going on and you are being summoned out of exile because the sum of all craziness has happened. And then I think the game's art style plays into that very well. You're kind of in this very brutalist vapor wave-ish kind of aesthetic here where everything's like bright neon tropical Miami kind of colors and you're uh, running around through that on top of the background and the lore like everything just seems the next level of crazy yeah it's a very crazy aesthetic for sure and it's like Egyptian and Sumerian Im imagery, 1970s technology, like you said, vaporwave and brutalism. But then, like, it's also like you're on a cruise ship with like music coming in over the speakers and all oh, that music. <laughs> that yeah, music it's, is it's great. Hey, here's a game I noticed the music for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how about that? That that must mean something. But it combines also the fact that it has you know an open 3D world but also some 2D pixel art. It just feels like a distinctly homebrew vibe, um, which of course it is, you know, it's a small indie studio. Uh, yeah, with those characters too, like everything's in 3D, they have gorgeous environments and you know, everything's as three-dimensional as you've come to expect in games, except for the characters that you run across, who are all uh, fairly high-detailed uh, 2D illustrations, or kind of sprites, that um, just kind of rotate to face you as you're going through there. So it's a very peculiar vibe, having that mix of 2D characters in a 3D, a fully 3D wor world. One where you control the camera and the perspective and all that. 
Absolutely. It's that the mixing of resolutions makes it look like janky, but in a very intentional way, I would say. Uh, definitely um, very intentional. The developers talked about how um, that decision, deciding to have the kind of simpler 2D characters, meant they didn't have to spend time rigging the characters. They didn't have to spend time syncing up the voice acting with the character models. They could just make it nice and simple, and they were able to make big changes they said to the game even a couple weeks before it was released big changes like nice cinematic touches like the uh, investigation scenes or the amazing late title card after you fall into paradise for the first time what did that title card say paradise killer it was just paradise killer oh, gotcha. <laughs> you know gotcha. like you 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 hit the ground after falling from your isol- or desolation cage and then all of a sudden Boom. Title card. Paradise Paradise Killer. (laughs) I don't remember if it was right before or right after you took that gigantic fall from this tower where you've been spending the last, you know, three million years in exile. Um, But you take this gigantic fall and then you see this message that says, and remember, gravity doesn't hurt you here, just (laughs) like all the other immortal areas. That's right. Hey, you're immortal. Certain thing you you can't apparently escape this island, but if mm. you fall off of it, you know, five hundred yards or whatever, it's not going to hurt you either. Um. <laughs> so I think it's worth just giving a little backstory on the lore right now. You know, uh, there's these old gods, dead gods, kind of Lovecraftian uh, plus goats kind of gods uh, that exist in the world, and they used to enslave humanity, and humanity rebelled, and um, the One of the gods, the silent goat, was killed, but he gifted his powers to the syndicate. And the syndicate is now trying to revive the dead gods and bring them back to power. So you already know uh, right off the bat that you're playing for the bad guys here. Right, pretty much. They they're the basically the enemies in every video game that keep failing to bring back the uh, the evil dead god, and ah. um, they're as you know as evidenced by the twenty four other paradises that were all failed due to demonic incursions or um, you know revolutions of one sort or another, or the um, gods scheming against each other or all kinds of things. Yeah, it, it's really interesting because they, they do tend to give you the backstory for each of the paradises as you go through the world through various collectibles and pickups. And um, one of my favorite things is the various characters' the sort of unintentional commentary on all of the previous things that have happened in this game's timeline and sort of their you know weariness and uh, sometimes disgust, sometimes admiration for the things that have happened in their history. And they've got a lot of history because, you know, they're immortal. Right. It's 20,000 years or something like that. Uh, uh. It's, <laughs> there's there's a lot of history here. This is like Elder Scrolls Codex level of backstory. And uh, as you know, I am always here for that shit. <laughs> no, this game did a great job with the kind of environmental storytelling it had. By the way, it positioned the buildings and the architecture and you had like the syndicate rolling above the citizen housing and there are you know even the codex entries you get it's like well you know we built these nice little suburban houses for the citizens because we thought that might get them to stop killing each other but it didn't work and it's just (laughs) kind of like those things you find in the way the levels are laid out that brings the point home yeah, it's a really fully realized world for such a short game. And, you know, this game will probably take you 10-ish hours to complete. But it's just very compact, dense, and full of information about its world. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I also like that it forces you to traverse it um, unless you're willing to spend the game's currency to unlock fast travel because it is dense enough to keep everything interesting. And they do an interesting thing where they don't really tell you where to go at all. So it's in your best interest to just sort of see everything between everywhere you want to go right off the bat. They put a crossroads right after the judge where you first arrive. And I think that's a great idea. It changes your whole approach, whether you go up, down, left, right. Yeah, you have to make a decision very early on about what thing you get to first. This game had a very strong open world component, and I really want to dive into why they did that and what that means. Uh, But while we're talking about the environment, there's a couple of things I want to uh, bring up as well, a couple of points to raise. The first is I think this lore is very weird. You know, it's very original, not something you've seen before. The developers talked about how that was a strength for them in designing the world. Like these guys are in England, you know, England's blanketed with CCTV cameras. You can't walk across the street without being on video 50 times. And they originally had CCTV cameras in the, um, in the world itself, like the syndicate monitoring the citizens. But then they realized that created all sorts of plot incongruities and things they'd have to work around. So they just said, ah, we'll just get rid of the cameras. And because the world is so weird as it is, the player's not like, why don't they have cameras here? They just kind of accept it because, hey, you're talking about dead gods leading rebellions against each other anyway. So cameras are like the too normal to be concerned about even. Right. It, it totally it, it makes sense because it it does play into the environmental storytelling that they are creating a totalitarian regime, but also they're not really worried about the people that are underneath them because they are so far underneath them that they you know, can't really even be bothered to care. They know at the end of the day that they are the ones with all the power and they will end up sacrificing all these people to the gods at the end of this iteration of paradise anyway. (laughs) Yeah. Everyone below them is expendable for sure. Yeah. And it's funny because they know, they know that they're never going to, to have to deal with the end result of, you know, living with these people in harmony, because if they do not succeed in their task of bringing back the dead gods by the sacrifice of literally everyone that is living in their paradise, they'll just try again. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, 24 islands down and the next one's supposed to be perfect, I hear. Perfect 25. Yeah, perfect, so they say. But <laughs> there's uh, there, there's plenty in this game that leads you to believe that that may not, in fact, be the case. That's very true. And and maybe we should go into that and talk a little bit about some of the interplay of the characters that's going on here. Yeah, that sounds good. So, uh, as we were saying before, you take the role of Lady Love Dies, who is your uh, player character and the investigation freak called out of, uh, basically, called out of retirement for one last investigation. Um, (laughs) One last big score. (laughs) Yep. Uh, And, you know, she, as we said up top, this is basically uh, to investigate the crime to end all crimes, the murder of the entire council, high-ranking syndicate members. Uh, and basically the bosses of all of the people who we are going to be talking about uh, in in this game. So it's interesting because it does seem like someone managed to cut the head off the Hydra in this uh, particular crime, and, and now all of these sort of vassals and underlings and relatively high-ranking people are, are vying to fill the power vacuum. 
I thought this was a pretty good framing story. Uh, in the game's lore, Lady Love dies. Um, she was exiled uh, after Island 13 when she almost brought about the downfall of the entire syndicate because one of these dead gods, surprise, surprise, deceived her and almost uh, like brought the whole thing crashing down. So she's been out of the loop for the last 11 islands now, and she knows all of these people because they've all been immortal buddies together, um, with, I think, one exception. Um, so she has a history with them, but so much has happened since she's been gone. And it's like, the player's coming in, everyone on this island is scheming in one way or another, but she hasn't been because she's been like physically out of the whole thing. Absolutely. It's it's great because she's embodying a character with imperfect information, just like the player. And it, it makes a lot of sense as a, a person for you to embody. And we're about to go into a litany of great names. And if you uh, liked the name Lady Love Dies, one, you're not alone. Great name. But also, they're going to give you an introduction to each character, which borders on absolutely sublime. Uh, Lady Love Dies, born in the longest tower, Britain, in 1000 AD, under the sign of Kiss Me to the Moon. And every, <laughs> every character has an equally flavorful introduction just like that, which is wonderful. I think my favorite name in the game, uh, he was, wasn't someone you met as a character, but Kafka Memory. I mean, all these <laughs> names are just pregnant with meaning, and you want to figure out why and what they're doing and everything like a dr doom jazz or witness to the end and like yep <laughs> you want to learn about these characters great absolutely names, grade a names yeah they they really like they killed it on the names in in almost every instance um maybe we could talk a bit about um a couple of them you know that maybe stuck out to us i think doom jazz is definitely one of my favorites probably a, a, uh. a player favorite in general just because he's like a doctor playboy that lives on a yacht um, and I mean, you can't have yacht rock <laughs> without <laughs> without the yacht, right? right? That's true. This game had to have a yacht in it, one way or another. I think it was it was predetermined. Um, he also Doctor Do- yeah, robot arms, mohawk. The guy's great. <laughs> yeah, you, you really can't. He's Scottish. I mean, come on. <laughs> he, he wants to bang everything that moves. I mean, what's not to love about it? <laughs> I guess that's the one take back. He's kind of a douche, but eh, whatever. You know, he's an immortal douche. <laughs> <laughs> Not as douchey as some of the other ones, though, uh, in ways obvious and less so. Yeah, true. Um, you'll The true colors of every character will come out, and Doom Jazz turns out to be one of the, the least reprehensible. Um, although it's worth mentioning, as I'm sure we'll get into later, that all of these people are reprehensible. <laughs> On some ways or another. I, I'd say uh, my favorite characters were Doom Jazz and then the Daybreak couple, Sam and Lydia Daybreak. Who they you know they were involved in the murder in one way or another, but it's because they wanted to get out of the syndicate. And I'm like, oh, okay, guys, I'm not gonna like I don't know what you did, but I did not pin anything on them at the trial. And I'm just like, yeah, we're we're cool. Like I had the evidence, but I didn't want to convict them. Yep, I, I actually was in the same boat. Sam and Lydia Daybreak do seem, uh, you know, Lydia being the uh, as Josh mentioned earlier, the taxi cab driver who will do fast travel for you if you ask her, and also is sort of one of your staunch allies. You know, she was a good friend of Lady Love Dies before the exile. And then Sam, her husband, is the skeleton, the red skeleton master bartender, who's. Um, 
he also used to be an assassin. The backstory is that him and Lydia fought and like destroyed Kosovo over seven days in their battle with each other. And she stabbed him, but then he's like, oh, I love you. And he loved her so much that he stayed around as a skeleton afterwards. Yep. And somehow they both ended up joining the syndicate and now they're immortal. Um, (laughs) No, I really liked like uh, Sam has his own bar and every time you go there, he's talking liquor to you. But from like a very fancy like this guy knows his stuff about whiskey. Yeah, I do really love that. um, You know, there's a lot of random collectibles in this game. And one of the types of collectibles you get are whiskeys and drinks. And every time you pick up one of those whiskeys, you get a flash forward to perfect 25. Because as it turns out, the island was already in the process of evacuating when you showed up. So some of the syndicate have already been evacuated to for Perfect 25. Most of the syndicate. That's true. And uh, it turns out that one of uh, Lady Love Dies, or rather, Lady Love Dies' former husband, as well as his current lover, um, was also evacuated. And we get to overhear conversations of them at a Perfect 25 bar throughout the course of the story. I really like those little asides they had there. I had no idea what was going on at first, but you know, you kind of go with it and it worked really well. And then after you get those conversations, you get this really descriptive text about the whiskey you just found. Yeah. And it's <laughs> like, like the... this whiskey is for, you know, um, forgetting all your past regrets on a warm summer night. Or This whiskey has a particularly bitter taste because it was aged with zombies writhing in pain around it for thousands of years. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, when you're immortal, you get some, um, you get to experiment a little more with your liquors. I suppose so. A particular quirk. major characters that were not a part of the syndicate actually i think the only two characters who were not a part of the syndicate there was henry division a regular old citizen who was possessed by a demon 10 years ago and brought about the uh eventual end of island 25 or 24 and he's being framed for the murder of the council at the time so he comes into the um storyline quite a bit who does not come into the storyline, but who is present everywhere in the island is the demon Shinji, who comes around and just gives you commentary on little things here and there. He's like a collectible. You just get a little bit collectible bit of dialogue here and there. I do like both of these characters a lot. And um, I want to mention for Henry Division that it just so happens that he seems to have a stomach full of the council members' blood. So he's very clearly, um, you know, implicated, if not being full-scale set up. Um, you can, you know, we, we'll talk about this, I'm sure, but you can end the game immediately, blame him, and call it quits, um, hmm. because he's the most obvious suspect, right? I mean, if you don't really care to to dig deeper, he's the guy that they want to pin it on. There's a conspiracy. There are actually a couple conspiracies around the council, but uh, Henry is set up as the fall guy for one of them. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And as you mentioned for Shinji, I love the little things that he tries to bring in as sort of a neutral, also immortal outsider, right? He's a demon. Um, he's working on the same level of power and immortality as the syndicate, but he is not part of them. So the citizens, you know, 
Henry Division's 27 years old. His captors are 8,000 plus years old. <laughs> so there, there's not a lot of common ground there. But Shinji can talk to the syndicate on the same level, which I like. Um, you know, he's basically saying, hey, you're trying to resurrect an race of alien gods that enslaved humans and fought millennia long wars so who are you to talk about justice exactly (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. definitely an interesting character nice little touch he's not strictly necessary from an exposition point of view but does a good bit of world building yeah absolutely i always uh as soon as i saw a shinji in the wild and he is all over this this island um i would definitely go over and uh, click it click on him to get some interesting dialogue Mm -hmm. sometimes it'd be a little bit of lore sometimes it's just a little commentary on how fucked up things are but it's always worthwhile absolutely so uh, we talked a lot about the setting, a little about the world, and a fair bit about the characters. So maybe we should talk a bit about uh, the mechanics of this game. What are you actually doing from moment to moment? The major parts of this game, I think you can divide it up into exploration and interrogation. Uh, the exploration, the open world, this is, I think, kind of like the masterstroke of the game, in my opinion, is that they made this an open-world kind of game where you just wander around and find things out. You'll find clues sometimes. You'll find lore more often. Uh, but you're just kind of going around there. Like, every other detective game I've played, like Phoenix Wright or um, Disco Elysium, not really so open-world. It's more linear of a story and a progression and where they expect you to go. Like you said earlier, there's a crossroads immediately after you start this game and you can go where you want to from there. And that open worldness brings a nonlinearity to the storytelling, which they had to deal with, with the trials. Like you said, you have a fall guy you can blame at the beginning, but it also makes it a richer experience for that. Yeah, it, it, it is great. And I, definitely agree that the open world is what drew me to this game initially. I like having the freedoms to sort of explore where I want to, you know, meet people who've listened to the podcast uh, for a while know that I'm a huge Elder Scrolls fan, you know, Morrowind and Skyrim um, are both uh, up there for me. And I think this game sort of embodies some of that sort of um, crisscrossing the map and going to places of interest, um, you know, feeling that you get from one of those types of open world games as well. This game goes so far as to have the sort of Skyrim cliffside mountain rock jumping, you know, you can sort of <laughs> cheese, cheese your way up the side of a steep hill uh, if you think you can get there. And I love that. You know, I will always try and get somewhere that I think the game doesn't want me to be. And then all of a sudden I'll find a Shinji there and be like, oh, I guess they thought of that one too. <laughs> <laughs> they did have a couple of ability upgrades or movement upgrades you get to like the double jump the air dash things like that that made it easier to traverse the mountain slopes the apartment building ledges what what have you yeah it travels not initially easy but as you get those traversal upgrades it, it definitely gets a lot easier my only complaint about this is that that traversal upgrades are hidden in the the foot baths which i think is a little misleading like who would have thought that a footbath would necessarily get you a double jump and it's pretty steep price in terms of the game's currency as well yeah it cost five blood crystals those are the coins you find in nooks and crannies of the game are these um the money is made out of one guy's blood and i think that's why he's important (laughs) is because he has all the blood there they lampshade (laughs) this in the game too they're like why doesn't why don't we just let anybody's 
or use anybody's blood. And they're, they're like, well, then you have inflation problems and it's worthless now. It has to be one guy's <laughs> blood in order for it to make sense economically. Uh, but yeah, these um, foot baths where you get these ability upgrades, I agree with that. They're, they're not something I purchased until I had too much money anyways, well over halfway through the game. If I knew there were ability upgrades there that would have made my life easier, would have gotten them sooner. Would have helped prevent some of the backtracking that I was doing. Absolutely. And to that point, maybe we talk a bit about these blood crystals because finding them, I I found to be kind of fun, but also like a bit of a diversion from what I was trying to do. Because you see one out of the corner of your eye and you're like, oh, I could get over there and get get that. But then also it's like, oh, but I was, you know, I was on my way to investigate something. Do I really want to be picking up change off the sidewalk while I'm trying to investigate the biggest crime of all time? I don't know. They call it the Um, crime to end all (laughs) crimes. And you're like, oh, look, a shiny penny. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Although, basically to be fair if you guys are immortal then it's not like anyone's going anywhere yeah that's a good point you do have it's funny because this is a game that both exacerbates and subverts the sense of urgency because it immediately injects you with the gigantic sense of urgency the crime to end all crimes and then you know undercuts it with also you're immortal no one's going anywhere and the island is basically in a state of stasis mm-hmm <laughs> So, yeah, I guess it's like hurry up and wait. But yeah, I kind of like that. It's, you know, the whole island is a walking paradox. So um, it, it kind of makes sense. Um, in addition to, you know, spending them on upgrades or unlocking fast travel points, you can spend these blood crystals on vending machines to give you soft drinks, which are uh, also fun and will eventually net you an upgrade to the next thing we should talk about, which is your laptop starlight Starlight is important for two things. First of all, it functions as sort of a key and gate system. There are locks throughout the uh, open world they present to you that your computer needs to speak certain languages in order to bypass. Like, uh, I I just love the random languages there were, too. You can speak (laughs) the language of goats, of pyramids, of the cosmos, and of worship. And each of these uh, locks that you come across is a tiny, like, assemble the picture from these components kind of mini games you got there. Easy, fun, uh, pretty breezy, though. Nothing that was too complicated. I actually wish they um, started to mix and match the different languages, but they never got to that point. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Like the puzzles that come from Starlight are pretty simple, but I think the other functions it serves, like taking investigation notes and sorting them by character as well as subject, is very helpful. Um, also, I like the flavor associated with it. Starlight is basically um, I- implicate or sort of insinuated to be sentient, and uh, <laughs> they also call it a uh, panopticon uh, that interfaces with the nightmare computer. Uh, which is sort of the computer system for the island. In addition to that, it's based on a computer system uh, that is built from a language from a dead star. So a lot going on there. (laughs) A little bit of extra lore there too, yeah. Yeah, Starlight's definitely important for getting around and breaking open those locks. Uh, But I want to talk about the clue system. Uh, Starlight organizes every clue that you find. Um, every, uh, Every, like scheme you hear about every alibi you hear about um and it organizes them and the the developers talked about how this they had to 
make things a little more complicated because every single thing had to be attributed to a single person. You couldn't just have like a mystery. You had to put it underneath a certain thing. They did have like, oh, this is an unknown clue. We don't know who to attribute it to. But for the most part, things were organized around the characters in terms of alibis you're hearing about or when like one character is whispering a motive of another character to you or something like that very character focused yeah it's true and it's very interesting how they would let you get these clues and then not attribute them even though maybe you the player had a very good idea of who it should be attributed to which left open room for you know basically it was uh, imparting Lady Love Dies intuition onto the player, or lack of intuition in some cases. But um, there there was always a, a door being left open for, for some clues that maybe I would not have thought to leave a door open on. And that, to me, um, helped point the player in the direction of, maybe there's some more investigation I should do here uh, until it could be sort of narrowed down. I will say that attribution gave me some slight spoilers in some cases. Um, there was, I think, a point where I was talking to the dead or the sl- the used to be dead but now recovering god crying grudge inside the pyramid. And um, you hear about how some people were carving flesh off of him in order to... Uh, and without knowing anything more about that, that was filed under the who, how, how did people get past the fourth seal guarding the council? Whereas I'd never seen or heard about the fourth seal. I haven't gotten past the second one yet. So it kind of like jumped the gun a little bit in that bit. But, you know, if you're talking about a nonlinear game like this, it's hard to predict every possible path that every player might take. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you that uh, on that front and you know this was definitely one of those games where I often felt like hey the devs thought of almost everything here but there were also instances where due to the total freedom uh, you could find loopholes in that and and maybe get an attribution that wasn't necessarily a sound logical leap with the information you had at hand Um, so that being said, all of these uh, logical leaps and clues that you're putting together slowly over the course of traversing the island will um, slowly but surely bring you uh, into uh, the investigation. And most often, the way you're getting this information is through conversation with the remaining members of the syndicate. Now that I'm thinking about it, an interesting thing they did, which I thought was great, was that if say dr doom jazz gave you information about the alibi for say sam daybreak then sam daybreak on the kind of um lady love dice has this uh sort of investigation vision where you, where you can push a button and you see where everybody is on the island uh very useful at the beginning when you're trying to find them but also later on, if there's new information about someone, there's a little red exclamation point by them. So you know, like, oh, I could talk to this person, and I'm not just repeating conversation at that point. Yes, uh, the AR vision is actually the final traversal, quote-unquote, upgrade that you get. Uh, so it was another one of those things upgraded with the blood skulls, actually. Re- um, for y- I had that out the gate. 
Was it? Maybe you're, you're right. Maybe it was. Sorry. I'll, I'll, I'll take that back. Uh, maybe it was. You know what it was? It was you got a phone call at some point and they explained how to use the AR vision to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it is interesting that this game will at some point uh, just send you messages through Starlight. I guess I thought it was because I was dilly dallying or like going in the wrong direction or something and they try and point me back on the right path. Hmm. But. Yeah, they they eventually they eventually like will point you towards certain characters. Like I remember getting a call from Crimson Acid, and yeah, they'll they'll basically steer you into conversations with certain characters that will help advance your case in one way or another, or at least try and point you in the direction of some leads you might want to check out. It made it very easy to track, keep track of where to go. I mean, even Starlight even had a possible leads page that you could go and see like oh here's some questions that you have to answer right now and then you have like 30 different things you can check out uh made it very easy to go around and figure out who to talk to but then when you find these people and you start talking to them it has this great little intro they go through uh different sprites for the different emotions and what's going on and they're all trying to convince you that it it was them other guys that did it yeah, basically. And initially, I felt like I had no idea where I was going. This was almost like too open out the gate for me. But I was having so much fun exploring the island that it didn't really matter. <laughs> <laughs> so this this is definitely, you know, I'm not like a, normally a detective game guy. Like, you know, I really liked Return to the Oberdin. But honestly, that's probably the first like puzzle detective game I remember liking. I'm not like a Phoenix Wright stan or anything like that. But um, I do, I did really start to get into the groove with this game and investigating and conversing with the various characters uh, just because the the world was drawing me forward. That said, I do have a beef with how the conversation trees in this game made you try and find information because at some point you just had to exhaust every dialogue option and Mm -hmm. I didn't necessarily like how it made you do that. I think it could have benefited from some indicators on what would actually yield a result. Yeah, there were some perhaps more confrontational sort of things, um, but your goal in this game is to exhaust all dialogue options. There's no penalty <laughs> for choosing a certain thing, and it's like, oh, they remember that snide remark later on. Uh, everything gets smoothed over and forgotten. Yeah, it's it's funny because most syndicate members won't know shit about shit with regards to like most of the other syndicate members or the crimes or anything important really. But, you know, I'm asking them all of them anyway because maybe, just maybe, they have an <laughs> insight there that I wasn't aware of. And honestly, it's annoying. Like I want to be rewarded for my intuition, not for exhausting a dialogue tree. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that before, but really there's no like strategy to the conversation or interrogations. You're just going yep. through and buckshotting every possible question you can ask somebody. Correct. And that that was my exact approach and maybe it's just my degenerative gameplay making me have a worse time, but that was how I approached it and um Often I was rewarded for that degenerate behavior with uncovering like someone who knew about something they maybe shouldn't have. And I didn't like that very much. I think that was actually probably my least favorite part of this game that admittedly I loved. It was, yeah. Uh, I feel like the conversations with people, again, there was no no choices being made really in the conversation part of the game and the actual conversation. Uh, but what you would get is a little bit of more information on another character 
or maybe another couple of characters and then you go talk to them about it and you choose how to like who you talk to in what order it's almost more like the conversation is a reason to go back through the world as opposed mm-hmm. to the world being a reason to go through the conversation yeah that that's a good point i mean the writing is good right so it's not ever like it was a slog going through these conversations and they were brief and you could get through them pretty quick you know text scrolling wasn't a problem but at the same time, at the end, you're just cross-examining subjects on things they probably know nothing about. And it felt a little too work, you know, workmanlike for me. I just, um, I, I think it would have benefited from some streamlining in one way or another. Just gray out results that are clearly going to yield nothing or, you know, use the gameplay, use the gaminess of the game to the advantage of your your product here (laughs) it's like there wasn't a game in the conversation bit you know there there weren't choices being made maybe if we had a wish list for ways to improve the game that could be a thing to go with but yeah they they made the choice they did and you know it's not like it killed the game or anything so no no. uh, yeah we'll we'll have to just sort of let that one lie and you know know going into this game that you'll you'll have to wade through uh dialogue trees galore but hey it'll be worth it because you get a really cool story and some awesome reveals (laughs) there are some great reveals in this um i think the big thing for me was when you find out there were two conspiracies to kill the council not just one that's true there there's two perpetrated by two different uh members of the syndicate and they are being um they're being carried out in very different ways. In broad strokes, the two major conspiracies to kill the council was one was by the architect of the island. She's the one who, like, I don't know, did an Imaginarium production and created the entire thing. Um, she had a secret assassin's son who she was training to kill the council. And her and her secretary... And um, the Grand Marshal of the Soldiers, Akiko, um, they all conspired to kill the council by getting her assassin son into the council chambers and frame the demon-possessed Henry Division for it. While this was going on, there's also Witness to the End um, orchestrated... Great name. Great name. Fantastic name. He managed to... Using, uh, with the help of the Daybreaks, smuggled a crate containing a killer demon inside the council chambers. And, like, the when everything comes to a heel, like, the demon gets released at the same time that Dan and Gate, the assassin, gets into the room, too, and the council just doesn't stand a chance. Um, although, yeah, the, the guy does shoot both of them. The one, the one leader of the council, he does pull out his gun and shoot both of them, uh, the demon and Dannengate. But uh, both of these ca- um, crimes are happening. These conspiracies are happening at the same time. And you find evidence for one, which you say, oh, this doesn't fit in with how my th- my conception of this other conspiracy is going on. And when you realize there's two separate branching paths, um, then it makes a lot more sense that there's all these different things going on. Yeah, there's so many great reveals that lead up to this too, like finding out that Ice Kiwami, another great name, a council member, is Henry Division, the uh, demon-possessed character uh, who's being blamed on this is 
father uh, is another like interesting one. And then finding the former exorcist that would try and uh, remove demons from paradise. One last kiss who wants to bring the whole system down comes into the picture. It's just, there's a whole lot going on. And when, when everything comes to a head, you just realize that all of these people were vying for power in the same direction at the same time. And, you know, there's nothing else to do but sort of clean house. And <laughs> I don't know if that's kind of the approach I took at the trial, to be frank. <laughs> well, with the exceptions of the daybreaks, because I appreciate a man people. who can make a good cocktail. Yep, amen. Um, <laughs> I got, I've got a big reveal for you before we go on to, on to the trial. Yeah, of course. What if I told you that originally, witness to the end, was the judge? Paradise Killer. And was uninvolved with everything. What do you mean, was the judge? He, his character took the place of the judge character. Because in the current game, the released game, the judge is just kind of like this amalgamation Embodiment of, of justice. The island, yeah. yeah. Like, um, mm. he's not really a character so much as just this driving force for justice. He's a rule system. Mm-hmm. And I he- hear that originally, witness to the end, the character that he is now was acting as the judge for the trial. But the developers realized that having a single conspiracy wasn't quite enough to make the game tick because it was Mm -hmm. too linear for their tastes. Uh, It was too much like, here's the one right answer we want you to find. So they made Witness to the End have his own conspiracy to kill the council and added in all those different branching paths and red herrings and clues to find. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because witness to the end is sort of the high priest of the island right he's the one that sort of oversees um the ending of every island and shepherds everyone on to the next one um witness to the end is definitely the religious fanatic of the group right he is mm-hmm. most um most adherent to the laws of the dead gods that are trying to be resurrected he knows all of the teachings and preachings and he wants to um be basically the high pharisee when they return so he has a slightly different interest than every other syndicate member who are living high off the hog in the current arrangement, which is just perpetuating the return of the gods, not necessarily making it happen. (laughs) Working on perfecting the islands before they do their whole like, oh, I guess we're supposed to worship something or other. Well, there is a saying in business that there is plenty of money to be made in prolonging the problem. And I think that is a lot of what's going on in Paradise uh, in this game. (laughs) Fair point, fair point. After you go through all the story progression, you talk to people a lot you do a lot of backtracking going back and forth you're discovering new areas um then you get to the trial yes the trial uh in which basically the player dictates when this starts and hey uh it may never really be known what the best thing to do for all of the characters in this game are but the best thing you can do is act on the information you have now and the now is whenever you decide it should be in this game so That is one very interesting choice these developers have made. That is kind of an interesting choice. Like, you don't have to necessarily solve the puzzle, the mystery. Uh, The developers give you a 
scapegoat. They give you Henry Division. They're like, oh yeah, he did it. And there's characters who are telling you, just go convict him. We know what's going on. I mean, they're the conspiracy people. So of course they would say that, but you have the option as the player to just go and convict him. Yeah, and what I love about this the most is that since it can be initiated at any time, there's a lot of information that just comes to light throughout the course of the trial. Basically, they crack under the pressure of Lady Love Dies and her badass pistol um, <laughs> lo- looming over them. Mm-hmm. So it it does also make it seem like everyone is guilty, which I guess they are. You know, like I said at the top, everyone in this game is reprehensible. But it really depends on how much you value punishment and truth and you know what that means to you the game makes a point of saying the facts and the truth are not the same and the truth can be constructed at least in the eyes of the court and this judge figure has a real kind of like hard-on for justice like he is not caring about getting the perpetrators or getting the story straight he just almost wants to punish somebody um, he, not he wants s- action right like and he is he is dependent on Lady Loves Dies to bring him the verdict that he will enact. Yeah, like um, not to say that you can just accuse anybody and he'll go get away with that, but uh, I would say that the way the trial is presented, you do not have to construct a chain of events that necessarily led to what happened. Um, You just kind of go through you, you state every piece of evidence that you have, even if it's weak Um, Mm. and if you know, it passes some threshold, then the judge is like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. We'll kill this guy. Or he's like, what is your verdict? You know, you can choose to con- convict, you can choose to kill, you can choose to exile, you can choose to release. Um, oh, really? And- uh, now I know after the trial, you had that chance with everybody who was left over, uh, but I executed a fair number of people at the trial. Yeah, actually I did too. If you convict someone, they are executed. Yeah. Um, so I <laughs> I think I, I pretty much cleared house on the remaining syndicate members except for um, Doom Jazz uh, and the, the Daybreaks. I think everyone else... Oh, and uh, Henry Division. Henry Division w- went free to live out his remaining mortal life, which basically means nothing since he's going to immediately be sacrificed. But, um, <laughs> yeah, but, it's like, yeah. congratulations, you get to live another five minutes while the, before the island dies. <laughs> pretty much. That was the um, same for me, except Crimson Acid, I let her live. I let Crimson Acid live too, you're right. And yeah, like I could have convicted the Daybreaks, I had the evidence for it, but I'm like, eh, I don't want to. I'm going to try to, you know, I kind of wish they hinted at this through One Last Kiss and through some of the conversations in um, the bar in Perfect 25, uh, but they hinted like, is this going to bring the Syndicate down sort of thing? And I wish they hinted towards that in the storyline a little bit more like yes I let the daybreaks go but it wasn't like the game acknowledged that it never gave me a chance to say I want to let the daybreaks go even though I know they did it versus like oh I just never knew enough to know what they were doing yeah I I agree that when you when you leave the island and when you're done with the trial basically the game ends right you're not going to see how it plays out and i think that's both a weakness and a strength of this game and i want to like sort of draw a parallel between this and like the fallout new vegas approach you play that game right i played for 15 minutes 
<laughs> oh, <laughs> oh man, you need to play that game. Um, but I think this happens in other Fallout games too. So maybe you'll you'll understand this this reference. But in in the Fallout games, generally, you get like a slideshow of the ramifications of all of the things that happen as a result of your actions throughout the course of the game, the factions you sided with, and what it means yeah. to all the people in the game. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. There, there there's other games that do this too, but Fallout's probably best known for it. And in this game, there is no ending slideshow. Um, Paradise Killer doesn't really care for an objective truth or even what happened after you made all of those judgments and convictions. It just ends, right? You're left to sort of guess what happens at the end of everything. And, you know, I think it's comment a little bit of commentary on the nature of justice. Like, the game doesn't care if you get it right or wrong. It's not like saying good job in a victory screen at the end if you convict the right person. Um, it's just... You know, you make your decisions and some people can get convicted. Maybe some people, some of the guilty go free, uh, but there's no commentary on it. It just happens. And I think that itself is a commentary on the nature of justice. Yeah, and especially the justice system as it exists in life today, especially in America, right? Like it doesn't really matter what's right or wrong. The system just kind of works machine-like using whatever is churned into it which you know garbage in garbage out and hmm. and just sort of acts um i think lady love dies or at least the lady love dies that i played tried to do her best due diligence but um you know you don't have to be that person most people if they want to finish a case off as quickly as possible would just see henry division there as the scapegoat and go in and end the game right if you want to speed run this game it's pretty quick <laughs> yeah that's for sure Um, so I, when I was looking through some dev interviews for this, uh, one of the things I found out about was that the developers of the game, the two lead developers, designers, they had strong political opinions um, about how things are and how things should be. Specifically, like they talk about how they used to drink together at punk gigs um, and how a lot of this game was kind of framed around these anti-capitalist ethics like you can see this in terms of you have the elites versus commoners i mean like um one interesting thing is that they made the syndicate immortal and this is something that uh kind of like a trope in sci-fi that i really like that uh you know for you and me today like okay jeff Bezos and Richard Branson just went to space because they're billionaires and they have too much money, but at least they're going to die someday. Like, that's the great equalizer is death. We're all supposed to die together. Uh, but some sci-fi games, movies, novels, what they do is the rich find a way to just live forever, and then they're able to do that, and it's like taking away this great equalizer we have, and that's something this game did. Yeah, it, it's true, and this game does have a really interesting thing to say about sort of elites versus commoners, syndicate versus citizen, and the fact that the citizens are sacrificed at every turn, and the syndicate who are you, you are embodying the will of um, are basically this 
cruel sort of genociding cult is definitely an interesting shoe or an interesting set of shoes to place the player in um the funny thing is is they do also have the other side of this represented in the game there are um citizens trying to organize uh also they're all dead they're ghosts you don't actually get to help them in any meaningful way (laughs) (laughs) no not so much you just get to see like um at the time the game starts, the sole remaining citizen is Henry Division because everyone else has been sacrificed. Yeah, I, I do think it's interesting the thing you said about the fact that the immortals are all, um, or sorry, the syndicate is all immortal while the, the citizens are uh, temporary, they're, they're mortal. The citizens are a means to the end, a way to keep the elite in power. Yeah, and this reminds me of another sort of sci-fi series. Uh, the uh, altered carbon series uh, sci-fi novels right basically all of the all of the richest people in that game or that uh, series universe are able to re-sleeve which means sort of inhabit a new young body whenever their current body gets too old they basically buy a cloned body they implant their consciousness into it and suddenly they're you know immortal effectively so um it, it has all kinds of crazy ramifications. It's a pretty interesting series. Uh, I haven't read the books, but I watched the Netflix series, uh, and the first season, at least, was quite good. Um, check that out if you're interested in that type of commentary. Read the first book, Altered Carbon. Loved it. Would definitely recommend. Yeah, and, and I think this game kind of gets at the same type of thing, right? Like, um, And honestly, in the system that we currently have in place in the U.S., it's not too different. The very richest people in the world are able to pass down untold amounts of wealth through tax loopholes. And, you know, there's very recently that um, ProPublica article that outlined the tax evasion strategies of the top 0.001%, which is just stomach turning. (laughs) Yeah, like Steve Ballmer, he runs the Clippers and is using them as a tax write-off strategy yeah it's you know we got problems here um, <laughs> and and they need to be solved obviously this type of thing is untenable in a, a just society so uh hopefully we can uh, work towards something else well speaking of working towards something else um you know like i mentioned before these two developers designers what have you uh definitely have a very punk ethos uh very much enjoy that music growing up uh one of the interesting things i heard them talking about in, in some of the interviews was how they feel that the vaporwave music scene is kind of the inheritor of the punk ideology uh they were talking about how punk music is still kind of beholden to traditional music distribution channels having to go through record companies and labels and all that whereas vaporwave is more the kind of like remix culture freely resampling from anything and everything yeah i mean there's that is absolutely true like vaporwave gives not two shits about copyright you know it samples everything under the sun and it doesn't give a crap about brands right like there is basically a artist i can't remember the exact name but has pepsi in their name like it's like dr pepsi or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> you know like um i i will find the uh the artist and link to them out of uh, respect for for that but yeah it's uh 
it's definitely an inheritor of sort of the anti-establishment vibe. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not just a music genre, it's a visual style. It's sort of that internet meme typology that emerged as, like, we got past the web 1.0 and all of that stuff sort of died on the vine and was abandoned, much like the abandoned malls of the uh, early to mid 2000s. Or in this game, the abandoned convenience store and everything else around it. Right. It's it's interesting because while it's basically like um, a music of abandonment, it's also kind of aspirational. It, it just reminds us that like the hopes of the past that were unrealized still exist, right? We can we can have that beautiful mall, but we can have it in like maybe a society that won't leave it abandoned someday. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, talking about the music too, I think this music blends two things together uh not necessarily like that's an original blend but kind of like you know there's the vaporwave aesthetic in music the kind of like miami or even talking about like hotline miami drums and bass it kind of bleeds into this more kind of uh almost yacht yacht rock sort of thing but that's maybe a more recent development in vaporwave i'm not going to claim to be an expert on it yeah um but like the aesthetic the neon the bright colors and the music went very well uh kind of recently vaporwave has taken up this genre of music called city pop from japan well yeah it's interesting i you know when i first listened to this game soundtrack i was like what is this and the the mm-hmm. nearest thing that I could see people mentioning was Japanese city pop, which is actually like music that emerged in the 70s and 80s in Japan. And basically it was like an offshoot of their like Western influenced music. Like they were taking cues from disco. They were taking cues from R&B and funk. They were basically like... You know, Japan was riding high from an economic perspective in this time, and they were uh, they were taking the best ideas from what had succeeded in America and co-opting it into their <laughs> own their own thing. Which you know, it obviously was seen as cheesy and um, you know, kind of um, you know, very much like the same as like the yuppie culture in America was seen. But uh, it also has some bangers that uh, were very much referenced in this game. You know, I kind of feel, if we're talking music history and whatnot, um, growing up, you know, I always heard about how uncool disco was. Uh, How, like... Totally the biggest lie ever told to us. (laughs) Pretty much. Uh, It's only been in the last, I don't know, five to ten years or so that you realize, like, there's kind of the racial connotations behind that that kind of make make that accusation a lot uglier. Yeah, you know, everyone that's ever... Uh, or every every I've always heard that like disco is cheesy and bad and like not fun to listen to and then every disco song I ever hear is like a complete like fucking slap so like I I don't know like you tell me maybe I have bad music taste but I also (laughs) seem to jive with a lot of disco so whatever I don't care I don't know if there exists bad music taste unless you're like I don't know there is definitely bad if you're in high school there's bad music (laughs) taste everywhere else (laughs) no I mean like disco has huge ties to the funk and the R&B and like those bass lines get dirty in disco and it's just kind of like preferences and like I said before kind of like um, racial connotations like oh we we don't like black music uh, we like rock and roll instead even though you know like rock and roll originally was revolutionary interracial kind of music 
Yeah, it is really interesting how, how the industry, the music industry, just tried to like section all of this off into like you very know, successfully. Yeah, very successfully. Um, it is ironic to me that the first place uh, I remember hearing like Earth, Wind, and Fire is in a Chipotle, and uh, hmm. <laughs> so you know that that led me into uh, much more fandom of like. Uh, funk and soul in Motown and uh, finding a little bit more of that type of music than I would have if I hadn't uh, participated in Chipotle's meteoric rise, which is quite (laughs) ironic, I think. (laughs) There you go. 21st century in a nutshell right there. Yep. At least for some people. So talking about the city pop, though, like this was a very Japanese genre of music, not something I have heard of before before playing this game. Um, one of the interesting things about this game to me was how much it felt like a time and place sort of game. And I was surprised to hear the developers were from England because this game feels very Japanese to me in terms hmm. of its setting. And not in terms of like, oh, this is a weird game and Japan is weird, but in terms of the mundane things like the apartment blocks or the convenience store that, you know, uh, is a huge feature of the neighborhood or the you know you talk you find some relics to talk about how important baseball is to these people and you know baseball huge in japan or the city pop music that's playing behind you like this game almost reminded me of a kind of a, a haruki mirakami novel hmm i don't have the uh category or i don't have any background information on uh that novelist however i have a couple explanations for why this might be okay um, one asset shops um i i don't know this for sure but i would guess that with a team this small um they're using a lot of pre-made assets that they were able to tastefully mix into their open world 3d game and some of those probably came from developers from large metropolitan areas like there are in japan just Mm -hmm. a thought um so that that's why i think like the fact that there's lots of trash cans and benches everywhere like there would be in um you know either um a european or um, Japanese, you know, East Asian or yeah, East Asian city. That makes sense to me, right? Like they're creating assets from things they see around them, and those end up in a game like this, who is utilizing a lot of pre-made assets. Mm-hmm. I've heard too that um, one of the influential video game series for these guys was a game called Danganronpa. It was a Japanese series, um, and it was about kind of like high school city or high school students. Um, in Japan and kind of had that culture in there. I think they were trying to, I don't know if they're necessarily going for that specific vibe, but I think they were very intentionally trying to place it in as a kind of like, this is a Japanese sort of city, a modern Japanese city. Yeah. I, I think I remember seeing somewhere that Daganronpa was a, um, an influence and yeah, it's very much like a, uh, Japanese visual novel crossed with investigation game and puzzle um, type thing. I haven't played any of them, but um, I'm interested. I know that they're supposed to be very highly regarded, and I recently bought a collection of them on Steam because they were so highly regarded. So that that might be in the future. Who knows? Stay <laughs> tuned. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. So one of the things about the City Pop soundtrack this game had is I liked it ten times better when I was hearing it in the game 
as opposed to when you first were talking about how great this game was and you linked me the OST <laughs> off of YouTube or something like that. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and I think it's that kind of that feeling of place that really made it for me. Like, hmm. when you posted the link on our Discord channel, um, I was just, I listened to it and I'm like, oh, you know, this kind of sounds like background music for something if i'm in some store somewhere this is something they play in the background uh whereas when i was Which inside the game i was kind of experience yeah like the city pop music like you said that's that's what it was it was the background music for a lot of places in japan in the 80s and 90s uh, but when i was inside the game it's like seeing it mashed up with this fantastical cult investigation thing going on and you're really experiencing the music in this game. Here's something interesting. Is this, this, this game, um, when a new song starts playing, it like plays the title track. Like this was MTV back when MTV played music. It like displays <laughs> it in a corner of the screen and says, this is a song you're listening to now. Like this game took a lot of care with its music and it shows. Yeah, it absolutely does. And I, I agree that it works best in game um i i likened it earlier to like walking across the deck of a cruise ship or being on vacation and i think that that absolutely holds true and i want to just call out um the band epic e-p-o-c-h epoch that uh played the uh tracks for for this game and how awesome it is because you know i i think this is good background music like you said i don't think i'd listen to it actively in the foreground except for the title track paradise uh which is vocal uh you know has a vocal element and uh that that made the running playlist for a couple weeks for sure Uh, (laughs) just like you know you need a mix of fast and slow on a good running playlist right because otherwise you're gonna like if you have all fast tracks so go too fast if you have all slow tracks, you won't really give yourself a good hard workout. So this was one of those good chill tracks that made a, a good appearance on the running playlist for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the... I, I hear you on like it not working quite as well uh, in a vacuum as it does in the game, and I appreciate that. But sometimes um, when a soundtrack is good enough, um, it can call you back to the time you had playing a game, and you can listen to it outside of the game and still get those same good feelings. Although don't try and play it for anyone else because they'll just look at you weird. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's how this. You know, I, I re-listened to the soundtrack for this game this morning, and yeah, I was jamming along with it. Um, I still had like the the memories, the recollections, the context, which make which make the soundtrack excellent. Yeah, and I think that's important, right? Like, you know, someone might not immediately think that like hearing, um, you know, the, the forest song from Chrono Trigger is like the most amazing song they've ever heard. But if they remember what they were experiencing when they heard that in game, they might think differently. So, you know, music calls you back to a time and place. Uh, That's why boy bands are so popular. (laughs) (laughs) So now that we've talked about uh, everything from top to bottom, story to mechanics to music of Paradise Killer, let's try and sum everything up with a three-word review. 
Alright, my three-word review for this game is Occult Vaporwave Banger. Uh, when I first heard the premise of this game, like open-world detective game, I was a little confused. I didn't think it would work. It felt like two genres that didn't have anything to do with each other, and I did not see how you could make a coherent game out of that. But this game succeeded very admirably. Uh, I had a great time exploring Island 24, getting to know the characters, especially getting to know the crazy lore behind everything. Uh, I'm not saying it's a perfect game. Uh, I think they could have used a little more pacing and gating in terms of splitting up the exploration of everything on the island versus talking to people, but I appreciate their ambition and their strength of conviction and how they made those game design decisions. Uh, the soundtrack for this game was fantastic um, and definitely going on my uh, top video game soundtracks uh, for the last decade at least. But this game was a hell of a game and I definitely recommend it to anyone. It is worth the time put into it. Awesome. I'm glad my uh, linkage of the soundtrack in the Discord uh, was worth my while. Um, <laughs> so uh, my three-word review is what main quest folks might call paradise killer a narrative exploration game but in my opinion it's more heavy on the latter exploration than the former narrative and placing the emphasis on letting the player explore the doom 24th paradise and all of its mysteries is what made it interesting to me even though the narrative held its own weight as well um Every nook and cranny in this game has an important or at least interesting thing to say about the world the Syndicate has built and continues perpetuating. Uh, the Syndicate's lack of regard for the cruelty of the system they've built is perhaps the most interesting part, at least for me, uh, in the commentary that it had on that society. For a group seeking paradise, they certainly had an interesting way of going about it, and it led me, as I've said multiple times before, to see them all as kind of reprehensible people, which I think is the goal. And the lesson to me is that it's important to ask yourself every once in a while, what are you doing this for? Are your actions still helping you reach those goals? And most importantly, is that goal even worth pursuing? What is your main quest? What is your truth and what are your facts? Absolutely. Uh, that's a good way of putting it. Truth versus facts might have been our joint three-word review. Oh, <laughs> how did we miss that? <laughs> well, we've just come to it uh, through the synergy of discussion. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this podcast, then feel free to share it with folks you think might enjoy it as well. And if you want to get in touch, drop us a note at pixelatedplaygrounds at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at pixelplaypod. For us here at Pixelated Playgrounds, I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Kalecki. Take care and keep on investigating.
One of the interesting things I was reading about in the interviews, I love doing this research thing. You find out so much about it. Uh, but that the architecture in this game was a very intentional sort of thing. And the developers were saying that if you are in the syndicate buildings, if you are kind of like in the corridors of power, you are always looking down on the citizen areas. And from the citizen areas, like, not even all of those corridors, corridors of power are visible. They're obscured by mountains or other towers or statues or things like that. Like, you never have a good view of what's going on when you're at the bottom. Yeah, I, I did like that about the, the architecture of the island in general. Like, the juxtaposition between the gigantic, brutalist, divine structures of the uh, syndicate and the very workmanlike, uh, crowded um, slum-slash-apartment buildings of the citizens. And I also liked how they somehow wove that into an ability to get around the island relatively seamlessly as the high-leaping Lady Love dies. You know, your combination of jumps and ability to use elevators and some hidden pathways allow you to still traverse between the two worlds relatively seamlessly. The citizens were kind of relegated to like half the island and they weren't very much allowed onto the fancy hoity-toity areas. You know, much like we are today with beachfront trespassing laws and the like. Hmm, yeah. It's true. Like, uh, there are a lot of fences in this game and, you know, until you get your first couple traversal upgrades, they can be a pain in the ass to, like, walk around and open gates for. And, you know, it, it, it kind of does imply the fact that like once you accumulate enough wealth aka blood skulls you can kind of go wherever you want um, which is an interesting sort of subtextual lesson in itself funny thing is for me there were i think three foot baths in the game uh two of them give you very powerful movement abilities the double jump and the air dash and i had already beaten the game almost by the time i discovered these uh, but there was one I really liked. That third one, the one I got a little bit earlier on, was you push a button down, and for the next 20 seconds, all of the pickups in the game are uh, reveal themselves to you. Like, uh, there's a little heart that appears to them, and it'll appear on top of any... It'll appear on top of any terrain or mountains or buildings that are in the way. Like, it's kind of like an x-ray vision. And you can see where the things you are that you want to pick up. Yeah, and I think that's really awesome because there are almost 200 relics in this game, you know, Ooh. that are telling you the, the basic backstory, not the basic backstory, the very in-depth backstory of this game. And, you know, in addition to that, there's computer skins that you can unlock with each save point. There's beverages that you find, as we talked before, that will teleport you into the world of Perfect 25 to hear overhear a conversation of your peers and just other things to pick up that will net you dozens and dozens of interesting facts about the deep and involved backstory of Paradise Killer. And what a backstory and lore that is. The developers say they are looking into future games because this one has been very successful. I think won an IGF finalist position even. Um, So props to them. They say they're going to investigate Island 13 where Lady Love dies is exiled so they're going to continue to explore this timeline rather than branching out into an entirely different ip and world and game i believe so 
can't wait. I did not like the Dannengate hidden assassin reveal. Oh yeah, the Dannengate seemed a little bit like Deus Ex Machinae to me. Really did, yeah. Yeah, he definitely seemed like sort of the one possible solution that could fit all of the possible loose ends that were still still trailing in the game. And I, I didn't love that. It just was like the perfect puzzle piece for the perfect puzzle. Um, you know, it was interesting the first time and like the reveal, especially, you know, the first time you realized that there was that character that was totally um, unknown before was interesting but at the same time it immediately like threw up my radar is like really none of these almost divine beings knew about this person (laughs) to me it was the way it was absolutely not foreshadowed in the game at all like Hmm. they could have done this better where it's hinted at earlier on in the game that oh there's this illegitimate child between the two or oh like um Carmelina Silence, the mother, has been purchasing, like, ninja training lessons or, like, (laughs) different ways to kind of foreshadow and foretell that this guy was coming. But when I got to him and should mention that getting to him was almost an incidental thing. There was nothing leading to him in terms of, like, saying, oh, you finally got to this room or, or pointing you towards this guy. We are signposting anything involving this guy whatsoever um but like i got to him and i'm like where'd this guy come from what's he doing it's like deus ex machina except for the oh here's the killer right here this is the guy that did it by the way all that investigation you were doing yeah it almost seems like he was an excuse to like make some more mechanical metroidvania-esque like traversal lock and key puzzles that led you to something very important right like you had to find one of like maybe two or three ways to get in to see diane gate i thought there was only one way in you had to get the the uh bunker buster gauntlets yeah and to get the bunker buster gauntlets you had to get um, you can't even call those metroidvania because he they just had one charge to him it wasn't a new ability it was a key it was a lock and key yeah it was was basically a lock and key but yeah, no, you're, you're right. Uh, it, it was really sort of, that was the most gamey this, this game ever felt, right? Um, I wouldn't say gamey. I just say... Contrived? Uh, yeah, the most contrived. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> it, it definitely not a perfect work, like we said. And, you know... It's no perfect 25. Yeah.